Highbridge Audio Productions presents The 48 Laws of Power, written by Robert Greene and read by Don Leslie. Preface The feeling of having no power over people and events is generally unbearable to us. When we feel helpless, we feel miserable. No one wants less power. Everyone wants more. In the world today, however, it is dangerous to seem too power-hungry, to be overt with your power moves. We have to seem fair and decent. So we need to be subtle, congenial yet cunning, democratic yet devious. This game of constant duplicity most resembles the power dynamic that existed in the scheming world of the old aristocratic court. Throughout history, a court has always formed itself around the person in power, king, queen, emperor, leader. The courtiers who filled this court were in an especially delicate position. They had to serve their masters, but if they seemed to fawn, if they carried favor too obviously, the other courtiers around them would notice and would act against them. Attempts to win the master's favor then had to be subtle. And even skilled courtiers capable of such subtlety still had to protect themselves from their fellow courtiers, who at all moments were scheming to push them aside. Meanwhile, the court was supposed to represent the height of civilization and refinement. Violent or overt power moves were frowned upon. Courtiers would work silently and secretly against any among them who used force. This was the courtier's dilemma. While appearing the very paragon of elegance, they had to outwit and thwart their own opponents in the subtlest of ways. The successful courtier learned over time to make all of his moves indirect. If he stabbed an opponent in the back, it was with a velvet glove on his hand and the sweetest of smiles on his face. Instead of using coercion or outright treachery, the perfect courtier got his way through seduction, charm, deception, and subtle strategy, always planning several moves ahead. Life in the court was a never-ending game that required constant vigilance and tactical thinking. It was civilized war. Today, we face a peculiarly similar paradox to that of the courtier. Everything must appear civilized, decent, democratic, and fair. But if we play by those rules too strictly, if we take them too literally, we are crushed by those around us who are not so foolish. As the great Renaissance diplomat and courtier Niccolo Machiavelli wrote, any man who tries to be good all the time is bound to come to ruin among the great number who are not good. The court imagined itself the pinnacle of refinement, but underneath its glittering surface a cauldron of dark emotions, greed, envy, lust, hatred, boiled and simmered. Our world today similarly imagines itself the pinnacle of fairness, yet the same ugly emotions still stir within us as they have forever. The game is the same. Outwardly, you must seem to respect the niceties, but inwardly, unless you are a fool, you learn quickly to be prudent and to do as Napoleon advised, place your iron hand inside a velvet glove. 
if, like the courtier of times gone by, you can master the arts of indirection, learning to seduce, charm, deceive, and subtly outmaneuver your opponents, you will attain the heights of power. You will be able to make people bend to your will without their realizing what you have done. And if they do not realize what you have done, they will neither resent nor resist you. To some people, the notion of consciously playing power games, no matter how indirect, seems evil, asocial, a relic of the past. They believe they can opt out of the game by behaving in ways that have nothing to do with power. You must beware of such people. They are often among the most adept players at power. They utilize strategies that cleverly disguise the nature of the manipulation involved. These types, for example, will often display their weakness and lack of power as a kind of moral virtue. But true powerlessness, without any motive of self-interest, would not publicize its weakness to gain sympathy or respect. Making a show of one's weakness is actually a very effective strategy, subtle and deceptive, in the game of power. Another strategy of the supposed non-player is to demand equality in every area of life. Everyone must be treated alike, whatever their status and strength. But if, to avoid the taint of power, you attempt to treat everyone equally and fairly, you will confront the problem that some people do certain things better than others. Treating everyone equally means ignoring their differences, elevating the less skillful, and suppressing those who excel. Again, many of those who behave this way are actually deploying another power strategy, redistributing people's rewards in a way that they determine. Yet another way of avoiding the game would be perfect honesty and straightforwardness, since one of the main techniques of those who seek power is deceit and secrecy. But being perfectly honest will inevitably hurt and insult a great many people, some of whom will choose to injure you in return. No one will see your honest statement as completely objective and free of some personal motivation. And they will be right. In truth, the use of honesty is indeed a power strategy intended to convince people of one's noble, good-hearted, selfless character. It is a form of persuasion, even a subtle form of coercion. Finally, those who claim to be non-players may affect an air of naivete to protect them from the accusation that they are after power. Beware again, however, for the appearance of naivete can be an effective means of deceit, and even genuine naivete is not free of the snares of power. Children may be naive in many ways, but they often act from an elemental need to gain control over those around them. Children suffer greatly from feeling powerless in the adult world, and they use any means available to get their way. Genuinely innocent people may still be playing for power and are often horribly effective at the game since they are not hindered by reflection. Once again, those who make a show or display of innocence are the least innocent of all. You can recognize these supposed non-players by the way they flaunt their moral qualities, their piety, their exquisite sense of justice. But since all of us hunger for power 
and almost all of our actions are aimed at gaining it. The non-players are merely throwing dust in our eyes, distracting us from their power plays with their air of moral superiority. If you observe them closely, you will see, in fact, that they are often the ones most skillful at indirect manipulation, even if some of them practice it unconsciously, and they greatly resent any publicizing of the tactics they use every day. If the world is like a giant scheming court and we are trapped inside it, there is no use in trying to opt out of the game. That will only render you powerless, and powerlessness will make you miserable. Instead of struggling against the inevitable, instead of arguing and whining and feeling guilty, it is far better to excel at power. In fact, the better you are at dealing with power, the better friend, lover, husband, wife, and person you become. By following the route of the perfect courtier, you learn to make others feel better about themselves, becoming a source of pleasure to them. They will grow dependent on your abilities and desirous of your presence. By mastering the 48 laws in this book, you spare others the pain that comes from bungling with power by playing with fire without knowing its properties. If the game of power is inescapable, better to be an artist than a denier or a bungler. Learning the game of power requires a certain way of looking at the world, a shifting of perspective. It takes effort and years of practice, for much of the game may not come naturally. Certain basic skills are required. And once you master these skills, you will be able to apply the laws of power more easily. The most important of these skills and power's crucial foundation is the ability to master your emotions. An emotional response to a situation is the single greatest barrier to power, a mistake that will cost you a lot more than any temporary satisfaction you might gain by expressing your feelings. Emotions cloud reason, and if you cannot see the situation clearly, you cannot prepare for and respond to it with any degree of control. Anger is the most destructive of emotional responses, for it clouds your vision the most. It also has a ripple effect that invariably makes situations less controllable and heightens your enemy's resolve. If you are trying to destroy an enemy who has hurt you, far better to keep him off guard by feigning friendliness than showing your anger. Love and affection are also potentially destructive in that they blind you to the often self-serving interests of those whom you least suspect of playing a power game. You cannot repress anger or love or avoid feeling them, and you should not try, but you should be careful about how you express them. And most important, they should never influence your plans and strategies in any way. Related to mastering your emotions is the ability to distance yourself from the present moment and think objectively about the past and future. Like the double-faced Roman deity and guardian of all gates and doorways, you must be able to look in both directions at once the better to handle danger from wherever it comes. 
Such is the face you must create for yourself, one face looking continuously to the future and the other to the past. For the future, the motto is, No days unalert. Nothing should catch you by surprise because you are constantly imagining problems before they arise. Instead of spending your time dreaming of your plan's happy ending, you must work on calculating every possible permutation and pitfall that might emerge in it. The further you see, the more steps ahead you plan, the more powerful you become. The other face of Janus looks constantly to the past, though not to remember past hurts or bear grudges. That would only curb your power. Half of the game is learning how to forget those events in the past that eat away at you and cloud your reason. The real purpose of the backward-glancing eye is to educate yourself constantly. You look at the past to learn from those who came before you. The many historical examples in this book will greatly help that process. Then, having looked to the past, you look closer at hand, to your own actions and those of your friends. This is the most vital school you can learn from because it comes from personal experience. You begin by examining the mistakes you have made in the past, the ones that have most grievously held you back. You analyze them in terms of the 48 laws of power, and you extract from them a lesson and an oath. I shall never repeat such a mistake. I shall never fall into such a trap again. If you can evaluate and observe yourself in this way, you can learn to break the patterns of the past, an immensely valuable skill. Power requires the ability to play with appearances. To this end, you must learn to wear many masks and keep a bag full of deceptive tricks. Deception and masquerade should not be seen as ugly or immoral. All human interaction requires deception on many levels. And in some ways, what separates humans from animals is our ability to lie and deceive. In Greek myths, in India's Mahabharata cycle, in the Middle Eastern epic of Gilgamesh, it is the privilege of the gods to use deceptive arts. A great man, Odysseus, for instance, was judged by his ability to rival the craftiness of the gods, stealing some of their divine power by matching them in wits and deception. Deception is a developed art of civilization and the most potent weapon in the game of power. You cannot succeed at deception unless you take a somewhat distanced approach to yourself, unless you can be many different people wearing the mask that the day and the moment require. With such a flexible approach to all appearances, including your own, you lose a lot of the inward heaviness that holds people down. Make your face as malleable as the actors. Work to conceal your intentions from the others. Practice luring people into traps. Playing with appearances and mastering arts of deception are among the aesthetic pleasures of life. They are also key components in the acquisition of power.
If deception is the most potent weapon in your arsenal, then patience in all things is your crucial shield. Patience will protect you from making moronic blunders. Like mastering your emotions, patience is a skill. It does not come naturally. But nothing about power is natural. Power is more godlike than anything in the natural world. And patience is the supreme virtue of the gods who have nothing but time. Everything good will happen. The grass will grow again. If you give it time and see several steps into the future, Impatience, on the other hand, only makes you look weak. It is a principal impediment to power. Power is essentially amoral, and one of the most important skills to acquire is the ability to see circumstances rather than good or evil. Power is a game. This cannot be repeated too often. And in games, you do not judge your opponents by their intentions, but by the effect of their actions. You measure their strategy and their power by what you can see and feel. How often are someone's intentions made the issue only to cloud and deceive? What does it matter if another player, your friend or rival, intended good things and had only your interests at heart if the effects of his action lead to so much ruin and confusion. It is only natural for people to cover up their actions with all kinds of justifications, always assuming that they have acted out of goodness. You must learn to inwardly laugh each time you hear this and never get caught up in gauging someone's intentions and actions through a set of moral judgments that are really an excuse for the accumulation of power. It is a game. Your opponent sits opposite you. Both of you behave as gentlemen or ladies, observing the rules of the game and taking nothing personally. You play with a strategy, and you observe your opponent's moves with as much calmness as you can muster. In the end, you will appreciate the politeness of those you are playing with more than their good and sweet intentions. Train your eye to follow the results of their moves, the outward circumstances, and do not be distracted by anything else. Half of your mastery of power comes from what you do not do, what you do not allow yourself to get dragged into. For this skill, you must learn to judge all things by what they cost you. As Nietzsche wrote, the value of a thing sometimes lies not in what one attains with it, but in what one pays for it, what it costs us. Perhaps you will attain your goal, and a worthy goal at that, but at what price? Apply this standard to everything, including whether to collaborate with other people to come to their aid. In the end, life is short, opportunities are few, and you have only so much energy to draw on. And in this sense, time is as important a consideration as any other. Never waste valuable time or mental peace of mind on the affairs of others that is too high a price to pay. Power is a social game. To learn and master it 
you must develop the ability to study and understand people. As the great 17th-century thinker and courtier Balthazar Gracian wrote, Many people spend time studying the properties of animals or herbs. How much more important it would be to study those of people with whom we must live or die. To be a master player, you must also be a master psychologist. You must recognize motivations and see through the cloud of dust with which people surround their actions. An understanding of people's hidden motives is the single greatest piece of knowledge you can have in acquiring power. It opens up endless possibilities of deception, seduction, and manipulation. People are of infinite complexity, and you can spend a lifetime watching them without ever fully understanding them. So it is all the more important, then, to begin your education now. In doing so, you must also keep one principle in mind. Never discriminate as to whom you study and whom you trust. Never trust anyone completely and study everyone including friends and loved ones. Finally, you must learn always to take the indirect route to power. Disguise your cunning like a billiard ball that caroms several times before it hits its target. Your moves must be planned and developed in the least obvious way. By training yourself to be indirect, you can thrive in the modern court appearing the paragon of decency while being the consummate manipulator. Consider the 48 Laws of Power, a kind of handbook on the arts of indirection. The laws are based on the writings of men and women who have studied and mastered the game of power. These writings span a period of more than 3,000 years and were created in civilizations as disparate as ancient China and Renaissance Italy. Yet they share common threads and themes, together hinting at an essence of power that has yet to be fully articulated. The 48 Laws of Power are the distillation of this accumulated wisdom gathered from the writings of the most illustrious strategists, statesmen, courtiers, seducers, and con artists in history. The laws have a simple premise. Certain actions almost always increase one's power, the observance of the law, while others decrease it and even ruin us, the transgression of the law. These transgressions and observances are illustrated by historical examples. The laws are timeless and definitive. The 48 laws of power can be used in several ways. By listening to this program straight through, you can learn about power in general. Although several of the laws may seem not to pertain directly to your life, in time, you will probably find that all of them have some application and that, in fact, they are interrelated. By getting an overview of the entire subject, you will best be able to evaluate your own past actions and gain a greater degree of control over your immediate affairs. The program can also be picked apart for entertainment 
for an enjoyable ride through the foibles and great deeds of our predecessors in power. A warning, however, to those who use the program for this purpose, it might be better to turn back. Power is endlessly seductive and deceptive in its own way. It is a labyrinth. Your mind becomes consumed with solving its infinite problems, and you soon realize how pleasantly lost you have become. In other words, it becomes most amusing by taking it seriously. Do not be frivolous with such a critical matter. The gods of power frown on the frivolous. They give ultimate satisfaction only to those who study and reflect and punish those who skim the surfaces looking for a good time. Law 1. Never outshine the master. Judgment. Always make those above you feel comfortably superior. In your desire to please and impress them, do not go too far in displaying your talents, or you might accomplish the opposite, inspire fear and insecurity. Make your masters appear more brilliant than they are, and you will attain the heights of power. Transgression of the Law Nicolas Fouquet, Louis XIV's finance minister in the first years of his reign, was a generous man who loved lavish parties pretty women, and poetry. He also loved money, for he led an extravagant lifestyle. Fouquet was clever and very much indispensable to the king. So, when the prime minister, Jules Mazarin, died in 1661, the finance minister expected to be named the successor. Instead, the king decided to abolish the position. This and other signs made Fouquet suspect that he was falling out of favor, and so he decided to ingratiate himself with the king by staging the most spectacular party the world had ever seen. The party's ostensible purpose would be to commemorate the completion of Fouquet's chateau, Vaux-le-Vicomte, but its real function was to pay tribute to the king, the guest of honor. The most brilliant nobility of Europe and some of the greatest minds of the time, La Fontaine, La Rochefoucauld, Madame de Sévigné, attended the party. Molière wrote a play for the occasion in which he himself was to perform at the evening's conclusion. The party began with a lavish seven-course dinner featuring foods from the Orient never before tasted in France as well as new dishes created especially for the night. The meal was accompanied with music commissioned by Fouquet to honor the king. After dinner, there was a promenade through the chateau's gardens. The grounds and fountains of Vaux-le-Vicomte were to be the inspiration for Versailles. Fouquet personally accompanied the young king through the geometrically aligned arrangements of shrubbery and flower beds. Arriving at the garden's canals, they witnessed a fireworks display which was followed by the performance of Moliere's play. The party ran well into the night, and everyone agreed it was the most amazing affair they had ever attended. 
The next day, Fouquet was arrested by the king's head musketeer, D'Artagnan. Three months later, he went on trial for stealing from the country's treasury. Actually, most of the stealing he was accused of, he had done on the king's behalf and with the king's permission. Fouquet was found guilty and sent to the most isolated prison in France, high in the Pyrenees Mountains, where he spent the last 20 years of his life in solitary confinement. Interpretation Louis XIV, the Sun King, was a proud and arrogant man who wanted to be the center of attention at all times. He could not countenance being outdone in lavishness by anyone, and certainly not his finance minister. To succeed Fouquet, Louis chose Jean-Baptiste Colbert, a man famous for his parsimony and for giving the dullest parties in Paris. Colbert made sure that any money liberated from the treasury went straight into Louis's hands. With the money, Louis built a palace even more magnificent than Fouquet's, the glorious Palace of Versailles. He used the same architects, decorators, and garden designer. And at Versailles, Louis hosted parties even more extravagant than the one that cost Fouquet his freedom. Let us examine the situation. The evening of the party, as Fouquet presented spectacle on spectacle to Louis, each more magnificent than the one before, he imagined the affair as demonstrating his loyalty and devotion to the king. Not only did he think the party would put him back in the king's favor, he thought it would show his good taste, his connections, and his popularity making him indispensable to the king and demonstrating that he would make an excellent prime minister. Instead, however, each new spectacle, each appreciative smile bestowed by the guests on Fouquet, made it seem to Louis that his own friends and subjects were more charmed by the finance minister than by the king himself, and that Fouquet was actually flaunting his wealth and power. Rather than flattering Louis XIV, Fouquet's elaborate party offended the king's vanity. Louis would not admit this to anyone, of course. Instead, he found a convenient excuse to rid himself of a man who had inadvertently made him feel insecure. Such is the fate, in some form or other, of all those who unbalance the master's sense of self, poke holes in his vanity, or make him doubt his preeminence. Observance of the Law In the early 1600s, the Italian astronomer and mathematician Galileo found himself in a precarious position. He depended on the generosity of great rulers to support his research, and so, like all Renaissance scientists, he would sometimes make gifts of his inventions and discoveries to the leading patrons of the time. Once, for instance, he presented a military compass he had invented to the Duke of Gonzaga. Then, he dedicated a book explaining the use of the compass to the Medicis. Both rulers were grateful, and through them, Galileo was able to find more students to teach. No matter how great the discovery, however, his patrons usually paid him with gifts, not cash. This made for a life of constant insecurity and dependence. 
There must be an easier way, he thought. Galileo hit on a new strategy in 1610 when he discovered the moons of Jupiter. Instead of dividing the discovery among his patrons, giving one the telescope he had used, dedicating a book to another, and so on, as he had done in the past, he decided to focus exclusively on the Medicis. He chose the Medicis for one reason. Shortly after Cosimo I had established the Medici dynasty in 1540, he had made Jupiter the mightiest of the gods, the Medici symbol, a symbol of a power that went beyond politics and banking, one linked to ancient Rome and its divinities. Galileo turned his discovery of Jupiter's moons into a cosmic event honoring the Medici's greatness. Shortly after the discovery, he announced that the bright stars, the moons of Jupiter, offered themselves in the heavens to his telescope at the same time as Cosimo II's enthronement. He said that the number of the moons, four, harmonized with the number of the Medicis, Cosimo II had three brothers, and that the moons orbited Jupiter as these four suns revolved around Cosimo I, the dynasty's founder. More than coincidence, this showed that the heavens themselves reflected the ascendancy of the Medici family. After he dedicated the discovery to the Medicis, Galileo commissioned an emblem representing Jupiter sitting on a cloud with the four stars circling about him and presented this to Cosimo II as a symbol of his link to the stars. In 1610, Cosimo II made Galileo his official court philosopher and mathematician with a full salary. For a scientist, this was the coup of a lifetime. The days of begging for patronage were over. Interpretation In one stroke, Galileo gained more with his new strategy than he had in years of begging. The reason is simple. All masters want to appear more brilliant than other people. The producer of a great work wants to feel he is more than just the provider of the financing. He wants to appear creative and powerful, and also more important than the work produced in his name. Instead of insecurity, you must give him glory. Galileo did not challenge the intellectual authority of the Medicis with his discovery, or make them feel inferior in any way. By literally aligning them with the stars, he made them shine brilliantly among the courts of Italy. He did not outshine the master. He made the master outshine all others. Keys to Power When it comes to power, outshining the master is perhaps the worst mistake of all. Do not fool yourself into thinking that life has changed much since the days of Louis XIV and the Medicis. Those who attain high standing in life are like kings and queens. They want to feel secure in their positions and superior to those around them in intelligence, wit, and charm. It is a deadly but common misperception to believe that by displaying and vaunting your gifts and talents, you are winning the master's affection. He may feign appreciation, 
but at his first opportunity he will replace you with someone less intelligent, less attractive, less threatening, just as Louis XIV replaced the sparkling Fouquet with the bland Colbert. And as with Louis, he will not admit the truth, but will find an excuse to rid himself of your presence. This law involves two rules that you must realize. First, you can inadvertently outshine a master simply by being yourself. There are masters who are more insecure than others, monstrously insecure. You may naturally outshine them by your charm and grace. No one had more natural talents than Astore Manfredi, Prince of Faenza. The most handsome of all the young princes of Italy, he captivated his subjects with his generosity and open spirit. In the year 1500, Cesare Borgia laid siege to Faenza. When the city surrendered, the citizens expected the worst from the cruel Borgia, who, however, decided to spare the town. He simply occupied its fortress, executed none of its citizens, and allowed Prince Manfredi, 18 at the time, to remain with his court in complete freedom. A few weeks later, though, soldiers hauled Astore Manfredi away to a Roman prison. A year after that, his body was fished out of the river Tiber, a stone tied around his neck. Borgia justified the horrible deed with some sort of trumped-up charge of treason and conspiracy. But the real problem was that he was notoriously vain and insecure. The young man was outshining him without even trying. Given Manfredi's natural talents, the prince's mere presence made Borgia seem less attractive and charismatic. The lesson is simple. If you cannot help being charming and superior, you must learn to avoid such monsters of vanity. Either that or find a way to mute your good qualities when in the company of a Cesare Borgia. Second, never imagine that because the master loves you, you can do anything you want. Entire books could be written about favorites who fell out of favor by taking their status for granted, for daring to outshine. Knowing the dangers of outshining your master, you can turn this law to your advantage. First, you must flatter and puff up your master. Overt flattery can be effective, but has its limits. It is too direct and obvious and looks bad to other courtiers. Discreet flattery is much more powerful. If you are more intelligent than your master, for example, seem the opposite. Make him appear more intelligent than you. Act naïve. Make it seem that you need his expertise. Commit harmless mistakes that will not hurt you in the long run, but will give you the chance to ask for his help. Masters adore such requests. A master who cannot bestow on you the gifts of his experience may direct rancor and ill will at you instead. If your ideas are more creative than your master's, ascribe them to him in as public a manner as possible. Make it clear that your advice is merely an echo of his advice. 
He must appear as the sun around which everyone revolves, radiating power and brilliance, the center of attention. If you are thrust into the position of entertaining him, a display of your limited means may win you his sympathy. Any attempt to impress him with your grace and generosity can prove fatal. Learn from Fouquet or pay the price. In all of these cases, it is not a weakness to disguise your strengths if, in the end, they lead to power. By letting others outshine you, you remain in control instead of being a victim of their insecurity. This will all come in handy the day you decide to rise above your inferior status. If, like Galileo, you can make your master shine even more in the eyes of others, then you are a godsend and you will be instantly promoted. Law 2. Never put too much trust in friends. Learn how to use enemies. Judgment. Be wary of friends. They will betray you more quickly, for they are easily aroused to envy. They also become spoiled and tyrannical. But hire a former enemy, and he will be more loyal than a friend, because he has more to prove. In fact, you have more to fear from friends than from enemies. If you have no enemies, find a way to make them. Transgression of the Law In the mid-9th century A.D., a young man named Michael III assumed the throne of the Byzantine Empire. His mother, the Empress Theodora, had been banished to a nunnery, and her lover, Theoctistus, had been murdered. At the head of the conspiracy to depose Theodora and enthrone Michael had been Michael's uncle, Bardas, a man of intelligence and ambition. Michael was now a young, inexperienced ruler, surrounded by intriguers, murderers, and profligates. In this time of peril, he needed someone he could trust as his counselor, and his thoughts turned to Basilius, his best friend. Basilius had no experience whatsoever in government and politics. In fact, he was the head of the royal stables, but he had proven his love and gratitude time and again. They had met a few years before, when Michael had been visiting the stables, just as a wild horse got loose. Basilius, a young groom from peasant Macedonian stock, had saved Michael's life. The groom's strength and courage had impressed Michael, who immediately raised Basilius from the obscurity of being a horse trainer to the position of head of the stables. He loaded his friend with gifts and favors, and they became inseparable. Basilius was sent to the finest school in Byzantium, and the crude peasant became a cultured and sophisticated courtier. Now Michael was emperor, and in need of someone loyal. Who could he better trust with the post of chamberlain and chief counselor than a young man who owed him everything? Basilius could be trained for the job, and Michael loved him like a brother. Ignoring the advice of those who recommended the much more qualified Bardas, Michael chose his friend. Basilius learned well and was soon advising the emperor on all matters of state. The only problem seemed to be money. Basilius never had enough. 
Exposure to the splendor of Byzantine court life made him avaricious for the perks of power. Michael doubled, then tripled his salary, ennobled him, and married him off to his own mistress, Eudoxia Ingerina. Keeping such a trusted friend and advisor satisfied was worth any price. But more trouble was to come. Bardas was now head of the army, and Basilius convinced Michael that the man was hopelessly ambitious. Under the illusion that he could control his nephew, Bardas had conspired to put him on the throne, and he could conspire again, this time, to get rid of Michael and assume the crown himself. Basilius poured poison into Michael's ear until the emperor agreed to have his uncle murdered. During a great horse race, Basilius closed in on Bardas in the crowd and stabbed him to death. Soon after, Basilius asked that he replace Bardas as head of the army, where he could keep control of the realm and quell rebellion. This was granted. Now Basilius's power and wealth only grew, and a few years later, Michael, in financial straits from his own extravagance, asked him to pay back some of the money he had borrowed over the years. To Michael's shock and astonishment, Basilius refused, with a look of such impudence that the emperor suddenly realized his predicament. The former stableboy had more money, more allies in the army and senate, and in the end, more power than the emperor himself. A few weeks later, after a night of heavy drinking, Michael awoke to find himself surrounded by soldiers. Basilius watched as they stabbed the emperor to death. Then, after proclaiming himself emperor, he rode his horse through the streets of Byzantium, brandishing the head of his former benefactor and best friend at the end of a long pike. Interpretation Michael staked his future on the sense of gratitude he thought Basilius must feel for him. Surely, Basilius would serve him best. He owed the emperor his wealth, his education, and his position. It was only on the fateful day when the emperor saw that impudent smile on Basilius's face that he realized his deadly mistake. He had created a monster. He had allowed a man to see power up close, a man who then wanted more, who asked for anything and got it, who felt encumbered by the charity he had received and simply did what many people do in such a situation. They forget the favors they have received and imagine they have earned their success by their own merits. At Michael's moment of realization, he could still have saved his own life but friendship and love blind every man to their interests. Nobody believes a friend can betray, and Michael went on disbelieving until the day his head ended up on a pike. Keys to Power It is natural to want to employ your friends when you find yourself in times of need. The world is a harsh place, and your friends soften the harshness. Besides, you know them. Why depend on a stranger when you have a friend at hand? The problem is that you often do not know your friends as well as you imagine. When you decide to hire a friend, you gradually discover the qualities he or she has kept hidden. Strangely enough, 
It is your act of kindness that unbalances everything. People want to feel they deserve their good fortune. The receipt of a favor can become oppressive. It means you have been chosen because you are a friend, not necessarily because you are deserving. There is almost a touch of condescension in the act of hiring friends that secretly afflicts them. The injury will come out slowly, a little more honesty, flashes of resentment and envy here and there, and before you know it, your friendship fades. The more favors and gifts you supply to revive the friendship, the less gratitude you receive. All working situations require a kind of distance between people. You are trying to work, not make friends. Friendliness, real or false, only obscures that fact. The key to power, then, is the ability to judge who is best able to further your interests in all situations. Keep friends for friendship, but work with the skilled and competent. Whenever you can, bury the hatchet with an enemy and make a point of putting him in your service. Never let the presence of enemies upset or distress you. You are far better off with a declared opponent or two than not knowing where your real enemies lie. The man of power welcomes conflict, using enemies to enhance his reputation as a sure-footed fighter who can be relied upon in times of uncertainty. Law 3. Conceal your intentions. Judgment. Keep people off balance and in the dark by never revealing the purpose behind your actions. If they have no clue what you are up to, they cannot prepare a defense. Guide them far enough down the wrong path, envelop them in enough smoke, and by the time they realize your intentions, it will be too late. Part 1. Use decoyed objects of desire and red herrings to throw people off the scent. If at any point in the deception you practice, people have the slightest suspicion as to your intentions, all is lost. Do not give them the chance to sense what you are up to. Throw them off the scent by dragging red herrings across the path. Use false sincerity. Send ambiguous signals. Set up misleading objects of desire. Unable to distinguish the genuine from the false, they cannot pick out your real goal. Observance of the Law in 1850, the young Otto von Bismarck, then a 35-year-old deputy in the Prussian parliament, was at a turning point in his career. The issues of the day were the unification of the many states, including Prussia, into which Germany was then divided, and a war against Austria, the powerful neighbor to the south that hoped to keep the Germans weak and at odds, even threatening to intervene if they tried to unite. Prince William, next in line to be Prussia's king, was in favor of going to war, and the Parliament rallied to the cause, prepared to back any mobilization of troops. The only ones to oppose war were the present king, Frederick William IV, and his ministers who preferred to appease the powerful Austrians. Throughout his career, Bismarck had been a loyal, even passionate supporter of Prussian might 
and power. He dreamed of German unification, of going to war against Austria and humiliating the country that for so long had kept Germany divided. A former soldier, he saw warfare as a glorious business. This, after all, was the man who years later would say, the great questions of the time will be decided not by speeches and resolutions, but by iron and blood. Passionate patriot and lover of military glory, Bismarck nevertheless gave a speech in Parliament at the height of the war fever that astonished all who heard it. Woe unto the statesman, he said, who makes war without a reason that will still be valid when the war is over. After the war, you will all look differently at these questions. Will you then have the courage to turn to the peasant contemplating the ashes of his farm, to the man who has been crippled, to the father who has lost his children? Not only did Bismarck go on to talk of the madness of this war, but, strangest of all, he praised Austria and defended her actions. This went against everything he had stood for. The consequences were immediate. Bismarck was against the war. What could this possibly mean? Other deputies were confused, and several of them changed their votes. Eventually, the king and his ministers won out, and war was averted. A few weeks after Bismarck's infamous speech, the king, grateful that he had spoken for peace, made him a cabinet minister. A few years later, he became the Prussian premier. In this role, he eventually led his country and the peace-loving king into a war against Austria, crushing the former empire and establishing a mighty German state, with Prussia at its head. Interpretation At the time of his speech, in 1850, Bismarck made several calculations. First, he sensed that the Prussian military, which had not kept pace with other European armies, was unready for war, that Austria, in fact, might very well win, a disastrous result for the future. Second, if the war were lost and Bismarck had supported it, his career would be gravely jeopardized. The king and his conservative ministers wanted peace. Bismarck wanted power. The answer was to throw people off the scent by supporting a cause he detested, saying things he would laugh at if said by another. A whole country was fooled. It was because of Bismarck's speech that the king made him a minister, a position from which he quickly rose to be prime minister, attaining the power to strengthen the Prussian military and accomplish what he had wanted all along the humiliation of Austria, and the unification of Germany under Prussia's leadership. Through insincerity and misleading signals, he deceived everyone, concealed his purpose, and attained everything he wanted. Such is the power of hiding your intentions. Keys to Power Most people are open books. They say what they feel, blurt out their opinions at every opportunity, and constantly reveal their plans and intentions. They do this for several reasons. First, it is easy and natural to always want to talk about one's feelings and plans for the future. It takes effort to control your tongue and monitor what you reveal. 
Second, many believe that by being honest and open, they are winning people's hearts and showing their good nature. They are greatly deluded. Honesty is actually a blunt instrument which bloodies more than it cuts. Your honesty is likely to offend people. It is much more prudent to tailor your words, telling people what they want to hear, rather than the coarse and ugly truth of what you feel or think. More important, by being unabashedly open, you make yourself so predictable and familiar that it is almost impossible to respect or fear you, and power will not accrue to a person who cannot inspire such emotions. If you yearn for power, quickly lay honesty aside and train yourself in the art of concealing your intentions. Master the art, and you will always have the upper hand. Basic to an ability to conceal one's intentions is a simple truth about human nature. Our first instinct is to always trust appearances. We cannot go around doubting the reality of what we see and hear. Constantly imagining that appearances concealed something else would exhaust and terrify us. This fact makes it relatively easy to conceal one's intentions. Simply dangle an object you seem to desire, a goal you seem to aim for, in front of people's eyes, and they will take the appearance for reality. Once their eyes focus on the decoy, they will fail to notice what you are really up to. You can use this tactic in the following manner. Hide your intentions not by closing up, with the risk of appearing secretive and making people suspicious, but by talking endlessly about your desires and goals, just not your real ones. You will kill three birds with one stone. You appear friendly, open, and trusting. You conceal your intentions and you send your rivals on time-consuming goose chases. Another powerful tool in throwing people off the scent is false sincerity. People easily mistake sincerity for honesty. Remember, their first instinct is to trust appearances, and since they value honesty and want to believe in the honesty of those around them, they will rarely doubt you or see through your act. Seeming to believe what you say gives your words great weight. To make your false sincerity an effective weapon in concealing your intentions, espouse a belief in honesty and forthrightness as important social values. Do this as publicly as possible. Emphasize your position on this subject by occasionally divulging some heartfelt thought though only one that is actually meaningless or irrelevant, of course. Napoleon's minister, Talleyrand, was a master at taking people into his confidence by revealing some apparent secret. This feigned confidence, a decoy, would then elicit a real confidence on the other person's part. Remember, the best deceivers do everything they can to cloak their roguish qualities. They cultivate an air of honesty in one area to disguise their dishonesty in others. Honesty is merely another decoy in their arsenal of weapons. Part 2. Use smokescreens to disguise your actions. Deception is always the best strategy. 
but the best deceptions require a screen of smoke to distract people's attention from your real purpose. The bland exterior, like the unreadable poker face, is often the perfect smokescreen, hiding your intentions behind the comfortable and familiar. If you lead the sucker down a familiar path, he won't catch on when you lead him into a trap. Observance of the Law In 1910, a Mr. Sam Giesel of Chicago sold his warehouse business for close to $1 million. He settled down to semi-retirement and the managing of his many properties, but deep inside, he itched for the old days of deal-making. One day, a young man named Joseph Weil visited his office, wanting to buy an apartment he had up for sale. Giesel explained the terms. The price was $8,000, but he only required a down payment of $2,000. Weil said he would sleep on it, but he came back the following day and offered to pay the full $8,000 in cash if Giesel could wait a couple of days until a deal Weil was working on came through. Even in semi-retirement, a clever businessman like Giesel was curious as to how Weil would be able to come up with so much cash, roughly $150,000 today, so quickly. Weil seemed reluctant to say and quickly changed the subject, but Giesel was persistent. Finally, after assurances of confidentiality, Weil told Giesel the following story. Weil's uncle was the secretary to a coterie of multimillionaire financiers. These wealthy gentlemen had purchased a hunting lodge in Michigan ten years ago, at a cheap price. They had not used the lodge for a few years, so they had decided to sell it and had asked Weil's uncle to get whatever he could for it. For reasons, good reasons, of his own, the uncle had been nursing a grudge against the millionaires for years, this was his chance to get back at them. He would sell the property for $35,000 to a setup man, whom it was Wiles' job to find. The financiers were too wealthy to worry about this low price. The setup man would then turn around and sell the property again for its real price, around $155,000. The uncle, Wile, and the third man would split the profits from this second sale. It was all legal and for a good cause, the uncle's just retribution. Giesel had heard enough. He wanted to be the set-up buyer. Weil was reluctant to involve him, but Giesel would not back down. The idea of a large profit plus a little adventure had him champing at the bit. Weil explained that Giesel would have to put up the $35,000 in cash to bring the deal off. Giesel, a millionaire, said he could get the money with a snap of his fingers. Weil finally relented and agreed to arrange a meeting between the uncle, Giesel, and the financiers in the town of Galesburg, Illinois. On the train ride to Galesburg, Giesel met the uncle, an impressive man, with whom he avidly discussed business. Weil also brought along a companion, a somewhat paunchy man named George Gross. Weil explained to Giesel that he himself was a boxing trainer, that Gross was one of the promising prize fighters he trained, and that he had asked Gross to come along to make sure the fighter stayed in shape. For a promising fighter, Gross was unimpressive looking. He had gray hair and a beer belly, 
But Giesel was so excited about the deal that he didn't really think about the man's flabby appearance. Once in Galesburg, Weil and his uncle went to fetch the financiers, while Giesel waited in a hotel room with Gross, who promptly put on his boxing trunks. As Giesel half-watched, Gross began to shadow box. Distracted as he was, Giesel ignored how badly the boxer wheezed after a few minutes of exercise, although his style seemed real enough. An hour later, Weil and his uncle reappeared with the financiers, an impressive, intimidating group of men, all wearing fancy suits. The meeting went well, and the financiers agreed to sell the lodge to Giesel, who had already had the $35,000 wired to a local bank. This minor business now settled, the financiers sat back in their chairs and began to banter about high finance, throwing out the name J.P. Morgan as if they knew the man. Finally, one of them noticed the boxer in the corner of the room while explained what he was doing there. The financier countered that he too had a boxer in his entourage, whom he named. Weil laughed brazenly and exclaimed that his man could easily knock out their man. Conversation escalated into argument. In the heat of passion, Weil challenged the men to a bet. The financiers eagerly agreed and left to get their man ready for a fight the next day. As soon as they had left, the uncle yelled at Weil right in front of Giesel. They did not have enough money to bet with, and once the financiers discovered this, the uncle would be fired. Weil apologized for getting him in this mess, but he had a plan. He knew the other boxer well, and with a little bribe, they could fix the fight. But where would the money come from for the bet? The uncle replied. Without it, they were as good as dead. Finally, Giesel had heard enough. Unwilling to jeopardize his deal with any ill will, he offered his own $35,000 cash for part of the bet. Even if he lost that, he would wire for more money and still make a profit on the sale of the lodge. The uncle and nephew thanked him. With their own $15,000 and Giesel's $35,000, they would manage to have enough for the bet. That evening, as Giesel watched the two boxers rehearse the fix in the hotel room, his mind reeled at the killing he was going to make from both the boxing match and the sale of the lodge. The fight took place in a gym the next day. Weil handled the cash, which was placed for security in a locked box. Everything was proceeding as planned in the hotel room. The financiers were looking glum at how badly their fighter was doing, and Giesel was dreaming about the easy money he was about to make. Then, suddenly, a wild swing by the financier's fighter hit Gross hard on the face, knocking him down. When he hit the canvas, blood spurted from his mouth. He coughed, then lay still. One of the financiers, a former doctor, checked his pulse. He was dead. The millionaires panicked. Everyone had to get out before the police arrived. They could all be charged with murder. Terrified, Giesel hightailed it out of the gym and back to Chicago, leaving behind his $35,000, which he was only too glad to forget, for it seemed a small price to pay to avoid being implicated in a crime. He never wanted to see Weil or any of the others again. After Giesel scurried out, Gross stood up under his own steam. The blood that had spurted from his mouth came from a ball filled with chicken blood and hot water that he had hidden in his cheek. 
The whole affair had been masterminded by Weil, better known as the Yellow Kid, one of the most creative con artists in history. Weil split the $35,000 with the financiers and the boxers, all fellow con artists, a nice little profit for a few days' work. Interpretation The Yellow Kid had staked out Giesel as the perfect sucker long before he set up the con. He knew the boxing match scam would be the perfect ruse to separate Giesel from his money quickly and definitively. But he also knew that if he had begun by trying to interest Giesel in the boxing match, he would have failed miserably. He had to conceal his intentions and switch attention, create a smokescreen, in this case, the sale of the lodge. On the train ride and in the hotel room, Giesel's mind had been completely occupied with the pending deal the easy money, the chance to hobnob with wealthy men. He had failed to notice that Gross was out of shape and middle-aged at best. Such is the distracting power of a smokescreen. Engrossed in the business deal, Giesel's attention was easily diverted to the boxing match, but only at a point when it was already too late for him to notice the details that would have given Gross away. The match, after all, now depended on a bribe rather than on the boxer's physical condition. And Giesel was so distracted at the end by the illusion of the boxer's death that he completely forgot about his money. Learn from the yellow kid. The familiar, inconspicuous front is the perfect smokescreen. Approach your mark with an idea that seems ordinary enough. A business deal, financial intrigue. The sucker's mind is distracted, his suspicions allayed. That is when you gently guide him onto the second path, the slippery slope down which he slides helplessly into your trap. Keys to Power If you believe that the deceivers are colorful folk who mislead with elaborate lies and tall tales, you are greatly mistaken. The best deceivers utilize a bland and inconspicuous front that calls no attention to themselves. They know that extravagant words and gestures immediately raise suspicion. Instead, they envelop their mark in the familiar, the banal, the harmless. The simplest form of smokescreen is facial expression. Behind a bland, unreadable exterior, all sorts of mayhem can be planned Without detection, this is a weapon that the most powerful men in history have learned to perfect. It was said that no one could read Franklin D. Roosevelt's face. Baron James Rothschild made a lifelong practice of disguising his real thoughts behind bland smiles and nondescript looks. Stendhal wrote of Talleyrand, Never was a face less of a barometer. As one poker manual explains it, while playing his hand, the good player is seldom an actor. Instead, he practices a bland behavior that minimizes readable patterns, frustrates and confuses opponents, permits greater concentration. An adaptable concept, the smokescreen can be practiced on a number of levels, all playing on the psychological principles of distraction and misdirection. One of the most effective smokescreens is the noble gesture. People want to believe apparently noble gestures are genuine, for the belief is pleasant. They rarely notice how deceptive these gestures can be. 
Another effective smokescreen is the pattern, the establishment of a series of actions that seduce the victim into believing you will continue in the same way. The pattern plays on the psychology of anticipation. Our behavior conforms to patterns, or so we like to think. In 1878, the American robber baron Jay Gould created a company that began to threaten the monopoly of the telegraph company, Western Union. The directors of Western Union decided to buy Gould's company up. They had to spend a hefty sum, but they figured they had managed to rid themselves of an irritating competitor. A few months later, though, Gould was at it again, complaining he had been treated unfairly. He started up a second company to compete with Western Union and its new acquisition. The same thing happened again. Western Union bought him out to shut him up. Soon the pattern began for the third time. But now, Gould went for the juggler. He suddenly staged a bloody takeover struggle and managed to gain complete control of Western Union. He had established a pattern that had tricked the company's directors into thinking his goal was to be bought out at a handsome rate. Once they paid him off, they relaxed and failed to notice that he was actually playing for higher stakes. The pattern is powerful in that it deceives the other person into expecting the opposite of what you are really doing. Remember, it takes patience and humility to dull your brilliant colors to put on the mask of the inconspicuous. Do not despair at having to wear such a bland mask. It is often your unreadability that draws people to you and makes you appear a person of power. <laughs>